Rigoletto is, of course, an opera that every opera house wants to have in its stable. It appears as number nine with 395 performances uh, in the last two years. And also it was ninth, the ninth most frequently performed opera in Italy as well. But this is also one of the most radical and indeed dangerous operas perhaps in the repertoire. And we sometimes forget that. For one thing, uh, Le Roi s'amuse by Victor Hugo, written in 1832, uh, staged in Paris, was political dynamite and banned for half a century in France. The French censors had seen a thinly disguised portrait of King Louis Philippe in Hugo's philandering hero, Francois I of France. But it excited Verdi when he was looking for a subject to fulfil a commission from the La Fenice Opera House in Venice in 1850. He wrote, the subject is grand, immense, and there's a character that is one of the greatest creations that theatre can boast of in any country and in all history. It's clearly the jester Tribule who attracted Verdi and his librettist Piave, a mixture of villainy and malice and yet paradoxically capable of extraordinary tenderness when it comes to his daughter, Gilda. For Verdi, Rigoletto, as Tribulet becomes in the opera, was a Shakespearean hero, and for Verdi there was no higher praise than that adjective. But if the French censors were wary of the politics of the play, then so were the Austrian censors who controlled theatres in Venice. There were rumours that the opera would be banned as a work that insulted royalty. The title was eventually changed to La Maledizione, The Curse, but eventually a compromise was agreed between Verdi, his librettist Piave, and the censors. The opera would be moved back to the Renaissance and to the court of the Gonzaga family in Mantua. And nobody could possibly be offended since the Gonzago line had conveniently died out, um, as had the dukedom. By January 1851, the opera was called now not The Curse, but Rigoletto. And the work itself, as we shall explore this evening, is as radical as its subject matter. Very briefly, the hero is the baritone, not the tenor. And the tenor, the Duke of Mantua, may have uh, two of the most winning arias that Verdi ever wrote, Questa Quella and La Donna e Morbole, but he's an unprincipled serial seducer who abuses both his power and women. The role of Rigoletto, on the other hand, calls for a quite new kind of expressivity in the way that it's sung, and that is as much about character and psychology as simply singing. But Verdi, being Verdi, doesn't entirely turn his back on the bel canto tradition of his predecessors, like Donizetti. So, for Rigoletto's daughter, seduced by the Duke, who she loves as a penniless student, he writes one of his most eloquent and most taxing arias, Caro Nome. Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to explore Verdi's Rigoletto. The tenor, Robin Lynn Evans, who's covering the role of the Duke, uh, with Kate Goller, who's a member of English National Music Department. We're also joined by the baritone John Rawnsley, who created the role of Rigoletto that you'll see tonight in this production by Jonathan Miller in 1982. But first, the musicologist Roger Parker, who is Thurston Dart Professor of Music at King's College here in the University of London. Would you please welcome Roger Parker. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think was the appeal of Hugo's play, Le Was Amuse to Verdi and Piave? Yes, um, 
Well, I think Verdi, all the way through his early life, is experimenting with new ideas, um, new types of drama, new types of character. And as you said earlier in your introduction, the fact that this had been a revolutionary play in France was very important as far as that's concerned. I think the other, and also, again, you said this uh, unusual protagonist who uh, is not going to be the conventional hero was something important but I think there's another aspect which was really important he talked about variety being tremendously important in this opera he saw the opportunity within this opera not only to have high tragedy but also to have a lighter kind of touch as also even a comic atmosphere which collects around the duke and so I think it's all of those different things that in the end convinced him. The opera was originally, as I've said, to be called La Maledizione, the curse. Does that tell us something about what Verdi and Piave intended? Um, well, I think it does, um, at least uh, initially, at the beginning of their run, Verdi goes on about this, and this curse is going to be the thing that controls the whole drama, and uh, I'm sure, as many of you know, when the prelude starts, it starts with this very characteristic music, which then comes back when Rigoletto recalls the curse that's been thrown on him. That works very well in the first act, and you can imagine a kind of Wagnerian kind of light motive technique coming out of this but actually the interesting thing is that in the next two acts that curse gets remembered in the libretto but never comes back in the music and the reason I think is that one of the things about this it, it, it is a, it's a motive which is stuck there is the first thing you hear in the prelude um, at the very end of the opera uh, Rigoletto says, ah, the curse, the curse, it's all about the curse. But you could not have the music of the beginning there. It's very slow, it's very suggestive in all sorts of ways. It's not going to work um, in the climax of the opera. And I think one of the things that Wagner could do with recurring motives is develop them and make them mean different things at different times. Verdi never got the hang of that, or didn't want to get the hang of that. So what happens with the curse motive, it's there all the way through as a, as a kind of libretto thread, but as a musical thread, it's very powerful at the beginning and then sort of drops away. Maybe that's part of its importance, that it doesn't change. It sort of dogs Rigoletto's mind as yeah. something that is not negotiated musically in any way. It's there yeah. as a kind of solid lump. Yeah, no, e exactly. And that's how, definitely how it works dramatically. But it's very difficult to bring back that lump, you know, at the end of when Gilda's lying there in a sack. You know, it's, the, the, musically it's not going to work in that way. We, we, we've said that this is a really radical work in a number of ways. It seems to me still that the most radical thing that we hear now is to turn the hero into a baritone, not a tenor. Yeah, um, it's very interesting, and a particular kind of baritone uh, as well. The guy who, um, who uh, created the role was called Felice Varesi, and there's a wonderful letter from Verdi's pupil where he says, uh, Varesi is small and ugly and sings out of tune. <laughs> now, which doesn't seem a great advertisement for a, uh, for a singer, but Verdi wants him uh, precisely because he's unprepossessing, but also what he can do is he can act with the voice. He's not a singer, he's an actor, 
who happens to be able to sing. And it's his power of declamation which is everything. So, in fact, there's a, there's a sense in which he's obviously uh, an anti-hero in all sorts of things. Everything, the world is turned upside down in Rigoletto. The, the handsome tenor is the villain. And this deformed baritone ends up to be the hero. So obviously that's what attracted him and the voice type is everything as far as that's concerned. Is it also that at this stage he's beginning to make what will be a major decision about what he wants to write in the future for voices, that expression matters more than beautiful singing. It's yeah. about character, about psychology. Yeah, absolutely. And again and again and again, you get this in later Verdi. He's telling people, don't sing, act with the voice. And it's all about the words coming across. Um, and when people sing beautifully in later Verdi, and I think it's the case in Rigoletto as well, when they sing beautifully, they're doing it for a particular reason in a particular dramatic context. Uh, but their normal mode of discourse is, is dialogue, is anguished dialogue, yeah. Verdi himself wrote about this, and I conceive Rigoletto, he says, almost without arias, without finales, but only an unending string of duets. Can we speculate why? Um, I think uh, what above all was, uh, was commanding his musical imagination at this point is confrontation between voices. It's this kind of dialogue idea. Um, and certainly there are arias, uh, in Rigoletto, but they're arias which are there for a particular purpose. They're not the normal discourse. What he, what above all fuels him at this stage is the idea of voices confronting each other. And I think that's incidentally why he's attracted to the idea of a baritone and a soprano having duets together, because they can't sing at the same range. They've got to be different. They've got to be differentiated in some way. You can't just, it's not like, you know, the famous duet in Lucia di Lammermoor. She sings it, he sings it, they both sing it. You know, it's not going to work like that. It's going to be much more dynamic. I've suggested that we can see the opera as political. In a sense, the production we're going to see tonight, uh, in a way, underlines that too. Um, is it perhaps about gender? Is it about uh, gender inequality? Um, is it about the essential corrupting nature of power itself and how the ruling elite basically misjudges and misuses power? Uh, you could say that about the libretto, yeah. It's very difficult to know how much the music partakes of that. It does sometimes in ways we've talked about. I think in terms of gender, the most important thing about this opera is the fact that in some ways the most musically dynamic character is Gilda, is the soprano. She changes during the opera. Things happen to her, awful things happen to her, and it changes the way she sings. So she starts off famously with Caro Nome, with this beautiful sort of virginal coloratura. But by the end uh, of, the, uh, of the third act, there's, a, there's a, an, an early um, commentator on Verdi said that what her line was like was canto spezzato, broken song. So it's a, a broken song for a broken heart. So she changes vocal personality. She's a kind of warm-up for La Traviata in that sense, a complex female character. And that's the most radical sort of gender thing that's going on, I think, in this opera, that the most interesting and complex character is the female lead. 
Why do you think that Verdi, not only here but throughout his career, is so interested in the relationship, in this case Rigoletta uh, and Gilda, but interested in the relationship between fathers and daughters? Yeah, I mean, look, a, a lot of ink has been spilled uh, about this and about Verdi's uh, desire to have children. He had two young children uh, very early in his life and they both died. And is he searching for some long-lost daughter? And, um, you know, one's a liberty to do that kind of biographical speculation. But I think actually much more important about fathers and daughters is what I said earlier, that they're not the same, that they come from different places. They're going to have different vocal capabilities. A father is going to be a baritone or a bass. A soprano is, a, a, a daughter is going to be a soprano. And it's the tension between these two things, tension between generations, tension between vocal levels, vocal capabilities, which above all inspired him at this time. So yeah, fathers and daughters, Daughters, but it's really more about sopranos and baritones. So we should leave Freud firmly at the front door? I think so, yes. Keep the umbrella wrapped up. You know, <laughs> that, yeah. We've had Rigoletto set in the Kennedy Brothers Washington in Las Vegas with the Rat Pack, Planet mm. of the Apes even. And yeah. this production here moves the story uh, up into the 20th century from Mantua to Little Italy with the Mafia. Um, it seems that absolutely nothing can actually stop this opera working. Yeah, um, uh, some came close of those. <laughs> but, no names, uh, no patrol. No. But um, it's interesting, Verdi, I mean, you mentioned the censorship uh, at the beginning. And one of the things Verdi really battled against was changing the locale of it. He, the thing he said, he didn't really mind if it wasn't set in France, but the most important thing he said, and it's interesting, is that the Duke has to be an absolute ruler. And that is absolutely critical to this. In other words, you, you have to have someone who can do whatever they want basically, who has absolute power. So as long as one, and he was quite happy about that, he said, as long as you can recreate that situation, then, then this is gonna work. And I think in some, in some sense, this production does that. There is a sense of, there is unlimited power within this tiny world which is being created. But I think that, that's the most important thing. I don't think it matters if it's 20th century or 19th or 18th or 17th, but it's got to be an ambience in which there's a gen, a, which the, when the, the police can't come around and help you out, there's got to be this sense of, of tension because there's absolute power. Roger Parker, thank you very much. Stay with pleasure, us. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by Robin Lynn Evans, who's covering the role of the Duke together with Kate Goller, who's a member of the English National Opera Music Department. Will you please welcome our next two guests? Robin, is there anything at all to be said for the Duke in this opera, or is he just a very nasty piece of work? Well, on, on the good evening, everyone. On the surface, um, he does get all the best tunes, uh, possibly, uh, albeit not taking into account Cortigiani, maybe in Caronome. Um, and they're all—he's a very light and fluffy character on the surface, but underlying is a very uh, 
sinister and, and calculating uh, individual, I believe. D does he develop? I mean, Roger's been talking about the way in which Gilda develops quite astonishingly, and we hear it through the music. Does the Duke develop, or is by the time he sings La Donna Immobile, he's exactly the same man we met at the beginning? Yes, pretty much so. Um, compared to other roles I've done, uh, Rodolfo and uh, Donatavio and... Um, Alfredo and Traviata, they, they do develop emotionally, you know, and they, they, they feel tragedy at the end, mm. um, Donatavi at the beginning. Um, but here, you only get a glimpse of maybe the inner workings of his mind d during the Act Two aria. Mm. Mm. Um, that's the only, he gives a glimmer, but not much. And, and is, is he really about the abuse of power, um, or is he about the search for selfish, sensual pleasure? I mean, which comes first? Is it women or power? I, I think... I'm giving you a very bad press. Here, yeah, he's a very nice man. They're both intertwined, I think. I mean, he wouldn't be able to maybe have the women without his power. I mean, what's, it? what's, the, what's the saying? Absolute power corrupts? Mm. Absolutely, is it? Uh, you know, he's got all these men around him. They will help him do anything. It's funny, in rehearsals we did... Uh, we did mention the um, similarities, um, Trump-esque similarities, maybe. Um, and forgive me for going, getting all political there. Um, swiftly moving on. Um, does he actually care for Gilda? It, when, you know, here he has been disguised as a student, seeing her in church, creeps into the house. I mean, does he care for her, or is she just a, another trophy? I think she is another trophy, albeit um, maybe um, a virgin, maybe, and maybe slightly. So he gives her, he does goes to extra, goes to extra lengths to, to, to get her, but, um, and he sort of tries to convince himself, but ultimately he's, she's still another notch. Okay. And how do you prepare yourself for this role? Uh, much rest, you know, much rest. Uh, and just trying to keep the voice ticking over as, uh, you know, as, as fluid as you can. Otherwise, you can't just go into it cold, otherwise it will kill you towards the end. And what does it ask from you vocally? What does Verdi ask you to do? <laughs> it requires a lot of stamina. I remember doing this nearly 10 years ago for the first time, and I remember uh, pretty much caning it in the dress rehearsal and um, nearly coming a cropper towards the end, and I thought to myself, right, you can't cane every bit of this in Act 1 and Act 2. You have to keep something back, mm. especially for um, the Act 3, the, the very famous La Donna Mobile, in case you haven't heard it's in it. Um, and then, of course, he gives you, straight after that, then you're straight into a massive quartet, so you need to hold something in reserve. Do you, do you think that's why the cabalettas usually can't in Act 2? Because, I mean, mm. that, again... Yeah, the cabaletta. Um, it's a great cabaletta. Um, possibly so. I mean, I prefer, I prefer it in, but, um, yeah. Um, just un ironically, I was on the tube today and there was one of uh, people busking with a, uh, a squeeze box and what were they playing? La Donna Immobile. <laughs> it's inescapable. Um, what are you going to sing for us now? Well, I'm going to sing um, not the Aras you've probably heard of. Well, you probably have heard of them. But um, I'm going to sing the Act Two opener, the um, El Amifura Peter, Parmi Veder, which gives him a bit more humanity. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody came and stole her, but when by God, just 
just in that moment, as I began to fear some danger, I hurried back there to find out what had happened. The door was open. She had completely deserted. And where could they have hidden my dear angel? No other woman has ever had such power to make me feel that I could love her forever. Someone so innocent, so Almost have believed myself a new man. Somebody came and stole her. But who would dare to? I'll not hesitate to have my vengeance. Just love.
find my Robin and Kate, thank you both very much indeed. Well, we've heard from the Duke, and now we have his jester. Will you please welcome the baritone John Rawnsley, who created the part of Rigoletto for Jonathan Miller's production when it was new minted in 1982. John Rawnsley. Well sung, Robin. There'll be a silver collection at the door. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Well done. John. When you... I just have to say, before I go any further, sitting there listening to Robin sing that, all the old butterflies came back to my <laughs> stomach as though they'd never been away. I used to sit in my dressing room here or wherever I was singing Rigoletto, whether it be in, in Spain or Italy or America or anywhere like that, and I would sit staring into the mirror, waiting for the tenor to finish, usually one verse of the cabaletta, and I was absolutely, I was, I was as nervous as all get out and the old butterflies came back. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Do, do, no, not at all. Do you remember John, Jonathan Miller explaining what he was going to do? Well, it was very interesting because I, I'd been singing Rigoletto up at, up at Opera North, English National Opera North, in 1979, um, which in, in a production by Patrick Libby. And towards the end of that, it had been a success at Opera North and, and so on and so forth, I got to 1980, 81, and we were still doing odd performances. And I, my agent said to me, uh, Ronsley, he said, you're going to be singing uh, Rigoletto at the Coliseum. And I said, oh, good God, that's, that's going to be marvellous. I sang Amon Azro there in 1979. Oh, yeah, all this, I was looking forward to it. And then somebody said to me, in a rather coy way that gossips usually have, they said, it's going to be a modern production. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Oh, well, yes. Mafia, they said. And I thought, why not? After all, the, 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 the Renaissance court, well, it's all about mafia, if you like. I mean, why not, yeah. And that first rehearsal with Jonathan, the, what we call the show and tell, when the director usually tells you what he's going to be doing, and, uh, and the designers are there, and they show you the model, and, uh, and they show you sort of swatches of material for your frocks, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's when Jonathan sort of came clean and, and said, well, he was inspired by a scene out of uh, the movie Some Like It Hot, when there was, there was the, the, the meeting of the, of the uh, uh, opera, grand opera club down in Florida, wherever it was, and there was a line in that when the, when the, when the detective says to uh, uh, Spatz Colombo, where were you last night, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and he says, I was at Rigoletto. And his henchman says, yeah, 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 we was at Rigoletto's. <laughs> and Jonathan had an idea, why not, to, to have this, this mafia-orientated thing. That's when I, when he started to talk like that, Arthur Davis, myself, Mary McLaughlin, uh, John Tomlinson, uh, we were all there, and I just looked at Arthur and Mary, this, this might just work. Because, you see, the one thing about Miller... The one thing about Jonathan, the one thing I've always loved about working with him, with him, he thinks things through from soup to nuts. 
as they say, all the way through. He follows his thought. It's, you get it all. There's no, oh, what are we going to do next? Ah, oh, well, oh, it's, he thinks it through. And that was the amazing thing. That was, that was one thing that I absolutely hooked into, hooked onto. Do you, do you think there are rules about updating uh, works in the Opera House? Well, it, it depends. As I say, you know, if, if, you've, if you're with a director who does think it through from A to, right through to Z, you know, from soup to nuts, then you put your trust in them and you know that it's going to work. I don't think there are any rules really as such as long as it's, as long as it's believable. As long as it's believable. I mean, there were some people, uh, the first night of, of this, they were a little bit perturbed, and, and the audience and everything, uh, they were worried about it. But when, because they'd heard the rumours as well, you see, and so, but when they saw it, it, it was, well, it, it didn't destroy Verdi's music. It enhanced it in lots of ways. Um, and the production, what people were seeing, people could actually, they could understand it more because we were in a, in a sort of a modern costume, as it were. Every day, albeit it was 1953, I remember I did a production in Frankfurt uh, some years later, in, 19, in the 90s, with Jean-Claude Ouvre, and he set it in the old Lingotto Fiat factory, which was quite large. And, around, you know, the people who lived and worked in one side of the factory didn't know what people were doing on the other side of the factory. You know, they was, it was that big. And I was Rigoletta in that. And Claude Ouvre, Jean-Claude Ouvre, had not thought it through. And you know, what do we do about Gilda? You know the sack and everything. You know, Gilda needs. We need to know about the sack, whether how it's going to open and so on and so forth. Whether it's whether it's going to be lined. The Hessian is going to be lined with satin or silk, because otherwise the the, 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 the soprano will get bits of fibre in her throat when it's all zipped up and, and all that stuff. And how are we going to open the sack? He hadn't thought it through, and so therefore it became more difficult, and it it made it. It made it more difficult because you end up talking to a, the soprano or talking to the tenor. You say, "What did you do in Hamburg when you did this? What did you do?" Oh, let's, you, you're falling back on old, tried and tested tricks, which you can in opera. You can't as an actor, of course. You know, you can't can't do that. Can you uh, remember uh, what kind of research you did as you were working on Jonathan's production? After all, you'd sung Rigoletto before for yep. International Opera North. Yep. Um, here was an entirely new... Did you have to do research into what it was like in Little Italy? Uh, above all, perhaps, the paintings of the period, the great uh, Edward Hopper ah, Nighthawks, which features... That's right. Well, that, was, that was Patrick Robertson's inspiration for Act, uh, act Three. No, I, research as such, no, I, I didn't sort of start doing anything academic or, or, or what have you. I've never been that sort of artist. Uh, I'm not that sort of artist. I tend to sort of, I, I start rehearsals and a character will develop as rehearsals go on. And, what, and of course, it's in the text. You know, you, you, if, you, if you make the text believable, if you, no matter how bad it can be, uh, um, if you make the text believable, the audience will believe it. Uh, it, I think that's called communication, isn't it? Um, you know, you, you have to... I've never sat down and done a lot of research as that, how, how to move. I mean, the only thing is I wanted, from Patrick, I wanted a built-up shoe. Because not a, not a built-up shoe that it looks as though you're walking in the gutter, you know, one foot in the gutter and one foot on the pavement. But this was a, a, a shoe, but the, the inside was, was built up flat. It was flat on stage, there we are, but the inside was built up like that. So... I could push against that 
and that twisted my body, twisted my spine, because that's indeed what Rigoletto has. He's got a twisted spine, uh, in, in a, in that sort of thing. And that brought the shoulder up automatically. So if you call that a bit of research, well, yeah, I, that's, that's the sort of thing that I did. But I do remember when we were rehearsing up at uh, the old Decker Studios, the, uh, as it used to be called, um, up there, the Lillian Baileys. I do remember we, we all turned up one day um, and everything, and the chorus and everybody, all the lines, all the boys were there. And there was a movie camera set up and a screen. And Jonathan said, right, right, you lot. He said, he said this is what I want you to be doing, he said, in the first scene. And we, sh we he rolled the movie and of course it was the, it was the party scene, the, the wedding scene from Godfather 2. And, you know, set in more or less the same era, the same period. And he said, I want you to watch how they pick up their glasses, how do they pick up a glass, how they pick up their highball glass, how they put it down, how, you notice when you watch wonderful uh, black and white movies, uh, 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 film noir, as it's called, you see these guys, the, the way Americans, they pick up a glass and they hold it by the rim so they can do that sort of slightly with a relaxed wrist and, and say, can I get you another drink? And, and, that's, and that sort of thing. And he had everybody watching that. And that was a great, that was a great piece of research because that inspired the, the boys and girls in the chorus, that first scene. Suddenly, even you know, all, the, all the small parts, the borsa, the marullo, et cetera, et cetera, the way they lit a cigarette, the way they held the cigarette, the way they put a cigarette out. And it's all done with great... It wasn't stubbed out, or it was dropped on the floor of the stage, and you know, it was a, it was a whole sort of thing. And suddenly, you look at that first, you looked at that first scene when we were running it, and all that chorus, everybody to a to a to a boy and girl in that chorus, they were Americans. Thank you, Jonathan. That was a, 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 an inspired piece of of, uh, uh, of research. Was that sort of got everyone? That's the sort of thing we did. This is, this is a role that you've sung everywhere. A lot. Yeah. A lot. And I wonder what makes Rigoletto uh, so exciting psychologically that you want to return to the role. Um, well, I'll tell you what, if I had to return to it now, I'd have to go into the gym for about three months. <laughs> Twice. Yes, he needs to be in the gym, you say. But I need to go into the gym for, 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 for twice or three times a week and get the old stamina back up. It's a visceral... It's visceral. The, the music, act two, the, the, the vendetta duet, it's a visceral thing. And it, it really, it's not, it's not sung uh, uh, in an academic way, but it, it has to be sung. It, that sort of thing. It's, it's, uh, ask me that question again. Well, I, we were talking, Roger and I, as you will have heard, about uh, Verdi's insistence on expressivity as a part from, from, from Beautiful Scene. And I wonder if, as you're thinking about this character psychologically, yeah. you're actually looking at what the voice does in a different kind of way to play him. Yes, of course. Well, you see, he does. The, the wonderful thing about, uh, about Verdi, he, he wrote for a particular style of baritone. He invented, <coughs> he invented a, a baritone. It was known as a Verdi baritone, who was, you might say, was part tenor, because it's a very high, it's got a very high lying line. So you've got to be able to sing all those duets which are, which are continually high. It's high stuff. It doesn't visit the, the, the lower octaves, only occasionally. I mean, I think Verdi 
maybe if you look at Stefalio, he wrote for Stankar, he wrote a bottom F for, 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 his, uh, for his baritone there, which is right off, off the Richter scale as far as I'm concerned. I never sang down there. But in two other operas, Aida and in, in Ballo in Mascara, for his baritones, he, he writes bottom A's. With Rigoletto, he doesn't. It's all above the stave or just on the stave at the top. It all has to be sung. It's called bel canto. And you've got to be able to sing that wonderful line. And then use the voice saying, the vet, before you get into that, uh, that act two duet, uh, uh, no, uh, the, the, uh, uh, um, yes, before you get into that duet with Gilda, it's got this, this absolute madness that he has. Cortigiani via razza dannata, he sings to them. And then he sees that's not, get, not getting anywhere. So he says, oh, Marullo, Marullo, please, please help me. Please, you, you, you've always been a kind man. I, I, you, we've always got on well, haven't we? And, and you, if you help me, he says, he says, get off me. You know, whatever, he pushes him away. And then he goes back to this, this madness again. You get, you get such a mix where you have to use your voice, certainly in Act One, Scene One, where uh, he comes out and he taunts uh, 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 um, uh, Ciprano. Uh, in this production, it's, what's this that I see on your forehead, Ciprano? <laughs> You know, these horns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's characterization. But then immediately, uh, and I think as it was when it was first done, I think, you went straight from that first scene into act one, scene two, on a revolve. So the street scene happens straight away. There's no, there's no, uh, um, uh, there's no break. And of course, you've got this man who is haunted by this curse because he believes it. Of course he does. When so, it, it's a father's curse. And that absolutely shapes him to his core. Uh, uh, last question, um, John. Did any of you working on this production originally know how extraordinary oh. it was going to be, what a success it would be well, over so many years? Well, I tell you, that, that, that first day, when we, when we started rehearsing properly, the, the, the rehearsal progress with Jonathan was always, right, well, um, here's the set, here's the bar. Um, ah, let's start. And nothing was written down. You know, I'd work with some directors who would write everything down. Then he'd come on stage left, he'd come on stage right, you do this, you do that, uh, um, uh, and what have you. Uh, some directors, one in particular, sadly no longer with us, would say, don't move out of that circle. Um, it, was, it was very, very difficult. With Jonathan, there we were. That was our, that, that, that was our, 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 our pitch, what we could do, what we wanted, our palette. And so we started, and Jonathan said, oh, I like that idea. Why don't you do such and such and such and such? And then I would say, or Arthur uh, would say, well, oh, that's, oh, yeah. and then, then, well, yes, then I can do, ah, I can make that work. And so ideas are born out of ideas, and that's how it started. It was, it was sort of a, a looseness, because Jonathan knew that he got a, a cast that could actually think like that. And they, they, uh, they weren't being told to move from A to B to C to D, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, a, that's how we did it. And that first break, the lunchtime break of that first morning, second morning, I should say, after the show and tell, Arthur and I and, and Mary McLaughlin had lunch together in the canteen. And we were silent. We had our sandwiches. And then we sat back and just leaned back. <coughs> I said to Arthur, what do you reckon? Arthur said, good God. Bloody marvellous, isn't it? He said, and he's broad Welsh. Apologies for the Welsh accent, Robert. But anyway, <laughs> you know, and, and Mary said, this is exciting. My God, this is going to work. 
And we made it work. And it grew and it grew and it grew to what happened the first night. The audience just gasped when they, certainly when the tabs went out for Act 3 and saw the, the Hopper set. So, and then Arthur came on uh, and, and, and put the money into the jukebox, of course, which you've all read about. But the great thing is, this is Jonathan again in 1953. In the hit parade in New York was Mario Lanza singing La Donne Mobile. And that was, on, that, was, that was on the jukebox. And if you'll notice, you'll notice tonight a little thing, a wonderful Miller touch, the band, the onstage band. See if you can see the name on the, on the, on the, on the cloth that hangs over the music, you know, over the music stands. It's Gualtier Malde and his orchestra. And when the Duke goes to see Gilda, she said, but what's your name? And he said, uh, 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 Gualtier Malde. And Jonathan planted, plants that idea right back in Act 1, Scene 1. And so it was a wonderful idea so that the Duke thinks, uh, 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 I can't, I can't, oh yeah, Gualtier Malde. You know, I'll, I'll call myself Ted Heath and his band, you know, or whatever it would be. And it's a wonderful little touch. That was Jonathan thinking it through again, you see. John, John wonderful insights. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Into, into this production. And Enjoy such a it. Treat, such a treat. Um, ladies and gentlemen, time has painfully caught up with this. Oh. Who would have wanted less? <laughs> Can I say thank you to all our guests this afternoon?